a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they develop to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And Michelle, it's widow day today. You're a widow, I'm a widow, uh, and we're about to tell a widow story, which makes all of us go two thumbs down. And yet, <laughs> It's the worst club ever, except that worst. you meet some of the most amazing, amazing people. strong people. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I was going to say is Mindy Holmgren's on the line with us. Mindy, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Like you said, it's hard that we come together with these circumstances, but the people that I've been able to connect with are just top notch. Yeah, and you are one of those top notch. I know today you've got child homesick. You've got a lot going on. You're a... you're a widowed mother of four young kids, and so just the fact that you yeah. would squeeze out 45 or 50 minutes of your day to share with us is is a big undertaking, so thank you in advance for that. Yeah. I'm yeah. hoping you can give us a little background. Tell us about yourself growing up. Tell us about your husband, Corey, how the two of you met. Tell us about your cute kids. Maybe give us a little background into who Mindy Holmgren is. I grew up born and raised in Salt Lake, Utah, and then just kind of had a really great life. I just have one younger brother and really great parents. I went to Utah State University for college. And when I was living in in Logan, that is where I met Corey. Corey's from Tremonton, Utah. And he had headed over to Utah State as well. We met while we were working at the Logan Deseret Industries. That's my favorite. Um, You're working at the thrift store. I love this. That is a true love story. (laughs) I love it so much. It it was so funny. Yes, I had this very strong personal rule to not date anybody from work. I just didn't want to even cross those boundaries. And then Corey started working there, and he was really cute. Like, we might have to break that rule. (laughs) Well, there might be an exception. (laughs) Yes. So I had this group date planned with my roommates, and my date fell through. And so I asked Corey out, and it was basically history from there. So we got married in September of 2006. And so we lived in Logan for a few years, and then we lived in Tremonton for a few years, lived in Murray for a couple of years, and now we are in West Valley. And that is where we bought our house and where I have stayed when, you know, everything went down. So we're just here, and we're happy to be here, and we really we really like all of that. So you mentioned we have four kids. My oldest is 14, and our youngest is three. Boy, girl, girl, boy, and uh, 
that's where we are now. So good kids, good family, good life, but hard things have yeah. happened. Tell us a little bit about your husband, Corey. Um, I know he was a member of the Utah National Guard. I also know he was a counselor. I also know he was a chaplain. Walk us through maybe that career path and those choices that, though they were his you know, titles on paper, what was that journey like for the two of you as you decided for him to take that career path? Yeah. So when I first met Corey, he was an Air Force cadet in the ROTC program at Utah State. And so when we got married, he was planning on doing Air Force, but he wasn't sure yet which sort of direction he wanted to go in the Air Force. He'd have ideas and I didn't love those ideas and we couldn't come together on the same page. We were taking a class together just right after we got married and the teacher of that class was a chaplain. And as he would share his personal experiences, there was one day that Corey was just really sort of distraught, feeling the stress of like, I need to make a decision or, you know, pick something or whatever. And I was like, well, what about a chaplain? And it just kind of stuck. That felt right for both of us. And so he went back to his Air Force, all of the teachers at the ROTC there, and the Air Force didn't really need chaplains right at the time. So he was like, well, then I guess I'll join the Army. So we made the switch over. He enlisted in the National Guard, the Utah National Guard, switched over to being an Army cadet to the Army ROTC, and he enlisted as a chaplain candidate. That was what he did until he graduated with his bachelor's, um, and then he commissioned as an officer. And then at that point, that's when you become a chaplain candidate for the long time that it takes to finish master's degrees or whatever upper schooling that is required at the time for the army and your specific denomination that you represent. And so eventually, (laughs) eventually he became a chaplain. During that chaplain candidate process, uh, the army requires, we we basically just call it chaplain school. And it was a three-month kind of schooling thing that he went away for. And while he was there, he was introduced to marriage and family therapy and realized how much he enjoyed it and kind of had a knack for it just naturally. So when he came home, he told me that he actually wanted to get a second master's degree and we kept pursuing that. So he had his master's in divinity, which was what the army required for a chaplain and then a master's in marriage and family therapy. So his civilian job was a therapist. He specialized in pornography and sexual addiction recovery. And then he did his chaplain stuff as well. And he kind of really did a good job about combining the two professions together in just supporting both soldiers as well as just regular people, but using some of the training as a chaplain and just kind of like really kind of putting it all together. And so, I mean, it was a really hard, (laughs) it was really a challenging career. The schooling took a lot longer than it was supposed to, just lots of different reasons. And then just being so, the, the time that was needed away from his family was really taxing on him and us. And there were many times that we kept trying to decide if this was really what we should be doing because it was so emotionally exhausting. And we just kept feeling like this was 
what was needed and kind of like it was a calling. And it's funny that we called it that when he was alive because we still kind of refer to what he's doing now as a calling, just our personal belief of him still existing in some way and still doing some kind of a work. And we call that his calling even now. So he just, we both kind of felt called to something that was bigger than us. And that was, you know, military service as well as helping people out of their darkest holes of addiction and depression and uh, betrayal and trauma, things like that. So really some difficult things, but we just definitely felt like this is what we were supposed to do. Well, and I love that you talk about how it's both of you felt that way. You as a couple, you as a family, you know, that line of work is so exhausting on both sides. I also love that thinking how well Corey could blend those two uh, sets of training. He would have had his academic training and his military training, and I'm positive both of them made him better at the other. That, that his professional yes, training made him a better chaplain. I'm sure his chaplain training made him a better professional in that therapy world. So, Mindy, this is great to get this picture of this marriage, 2006. Then your husband switches from Air Force to Army as a cadet. He goes through this academic journey, this military journey, this divinity journey. Let's fast forward to the very end of 2018 and the beginning of 2019. We're going to take a quick break and come back, and I want you to walk us through kind of introduce what January brought to you that year. We'll be right back. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so Mindy, I knew about you before I ever met you, and that was in January of 2019. I can still picture where I was. I had attended an event at a lunchtime, and the state chaplain for the Utah National Guard had been at the same event, and he pulled me aside and asked me if I knew Mindy Holmgren and if I had heard about her husband. And I had not in the moment. This was just days after everything had happened. And I remember instantly having learned that your husband had died another service member in the Utah National Guard. This was still just weeks after my own husband had died, and I remember my world just crashing again, thinking, I can't imagine another family going through this. And then to learn you had three of your four children here, and the fourth was still in utero, and and to think of you being pregnant that time. Can you walk us through that weekend in January of 2019? Yeah. So I was pregnant with our youngest. I was around seven months pregnant when Corey died. He, we just had this weekend where he needed to attend a yellow ribbon event. It was a Saturday morning. And as a chaplain, he was there to represent a yellow ribbon event is when soldiers have recently returned home from a deployment. It's kind of a reintegration event for families to help give you different resources to help that process of 
getting back into, you know, family life or, you know, civilian job and different things like that. So he was there offering his support as a chaplain. We had both just kind of thought it was going to be basically all day. And he ended up presenting his material just in the morning and finished early. So he called me on the way home and he was done hours before we saw it. And that was just so, (laughs) so uh, rare to have this unexpected Saturday afternoon. And so we decided as a family that we would go swimming at our local rec center. Corey was a strong swimmer. He swam all through high school and played water polo and even played water polo in college at Utah State and, you know, was active physically through his army service and he wanted to go swimming. So me with my giant pregnant belly was like, sure, I will sit on the side and watch (laughs) and maybe put my feet in the hot tub or something. We invited some good friends and neighbors to come with us. So they were going to meet us there and the kids were all excited. So we uh, went over to the pool and Corey wanted to, he, he did this breathing exercise when he meditated. He liked to meditate and he liked doing this breathing exercise because it helped him focus. And he um, could hold his breath longer than normal when he did this breathing exercise. So his adventure self was anxious to see how long he could swim while holding his breath after doing this breathing exercise. And he wanted me to take a video of it to show everybody how cool it was. And um, so I had his phone and was videoing him swimming. And so he took a breath and went under the water and swam the length of the pool and then halfway back. And then he came out. He didn't look at me or say anything or gasp. There was no signs of anything being wrong. And then he just sank back down and he never came up again. And um, being confused about the whole situation, I just stood there and watched it, continuing to take a video. Um, Oh, Mindy. Not very much time passed, of course. The lifeguards jumped in, and I I said out loud, this is so stupid. I don't know why I said that, but I was just mad about the whole situation. And I came around to where they started working on him, and, you know, the lifeguards started working. Our friends that were there swimming with us came over, and she stayed with me, and her husband just took all of our kids to another room, and um, it was just really, really confusing because he was fine, right? So I didn't I really even understand anything that was going on, but I could tell he wasn't breathing by himself. It only took like a couple of minutes for the paramedics to get there, and I thought they were going to just immediately like whisk him away, and so... I went to the other side of the pool where the door was and was waiting. And then they ended up not bringing him right away. They just kept working on him. And I just stayed sitting on a bench watching from across the pool. And we started making phone calls to family and whatever. And my father-in-law, Corey's dad, was at Huntsman recovering from cancer surgery. And I was like, oh, don't call them yet. They're just like 
they're in the middle of all of their stuff. I'll just call them in a little bit. Like, cause he wasn't supposed to die. Right. He just like, this was this weird thing. I don't know what's going on, but he's going to be fine. So I didn't even call them right away. And then eventually, I don't even know how long it had, maybe it was 30, 40 minutes. We, we did go over to the hospital. Um, they kept trying to work on him there. And I did have family meet us there. It all was just really confusing. I had no idea what was going on and why it was happening. And eventually the doctor said, we've been working on him for a long time and it's, it's time for you to go say goodbye. So Mindy, what in that moment, was that still a confusing foreign thought to you up to that point? Did you still think surely he's okay? He's okay. They'll revive him. He's fine. He's strong. Was in that moment, did it hit you that something was really wrong or was it still, what was your emotional state as the doctor said that to you? He said that to me and I said, well, you can't stop. And, and he was like, it's been over an hour. And even if he woke up, he'd be brain dead. And, um, so it was at that moment that the disbelief started becoming a reality. Oh, um, I can't even imagine. It sounds from your story that there was this surreal experience going on for you, that you were thinking, well, he's healthy, he'll be fine. Yeah, That you totally. were just mm-hmm. in such denial at the whole process well, of what I, was unfolding in front of you. I'm thinking a Saturday afternoon at the mm-hmm. swimming pool as a mom, I'd be watching out for my little kids to make sure my little kids right. are fine. You don't think it's the yeah. healthy adult that's going to require right. the lifeguard. And, yeah. and you're and you're filming him. He's, time me, honey. Let's see how long I can hold my breath. Yeah. So, I, so did, I know. He, did he actually drown or did something else happen? Did he have a heart attack? Did Do you yeah. know? Yeah. So what did they say? You know, I don't have like a, a strong medical reason. His official autopsy report said a drowning because it happened in the water. Essentially, his heart did stop. They said that there was signs of high blood pressure. That doesn't makes sense to me because he'd had lots of physicals and even his physical three months before he'd never had high blood pressure in any of this test but the damage was there they could see signs of high blood pressure so i don't i don't know he overworked his heart there was a part of his heart that they found was enlarged and they said it was enlarged because of his high blood pressure and i even like went through all of his medical records all of the military stuff that they sent me and he never, ever, ever once had high blood pressure. So I don't, I don't know. I don't have a good strong reason other than I just will say that his heart stopped while he was swimming. So he drowned. That's my quick answer when people ask. Oh my gosh, Mindy. So even, (laughs) even after the medical reports and everything came back, there's not really a clarity. I imagine that in and of itself is difficult. And yet you sound I, I said this off the air, you're one of the most positive people I know. The fact that you can look at your husband's death as almost a calling and a, a continuation of his work. Can you just real quickly, how have you been able to find peace with not knowing medically? You know, you, you know, he could swim and he, he was healthy. It, it sounds to me like you've kind of accepted that maybe we're just not going to be able to fully understand that. Yeah, I've had to come to that acceptance, that realization it was not easy and it's kind of come 
in stages. I'd made my peace with it for a little bit, and then the autopsy report came back, and it brought everything back up to the surface. So I made peace with it again for a little bit, and then in various moments throughout therapy and grief groups, you know, there's been just different times where it comes back up again, and I have to re- think about all the things I felt that day. And then it kind of, I come back to where I am now in that moment. And I like, yes, all of this happened. No, I don't know the reason, but I have hope that someday I'll be able to understand more. And it's sort of that hope of it's okay that I don't know right now because someday everything will eventually be okay. It's really interesting as you, for me to hear you, you go through that process. I don't hear you saying, I just feel like it was his time, which I'll, some people who have lost really feel like it was just his time God called him home. I'm not a big fan of that myself, but for some people that does provide solace and grief in some way that they just place it on God and just let go of it. I don't hear you saying that. Yeah, you know, I don't like that phrase either. I don't (laughs) like saying that it was his time. However, I think Corey knew without knowing that he knew. As I look back over the last, like, few weeks, even months a little bit, of um, his journals and things that he said to people, various different phrases, I think he knew something was coming. I don't think he knew what it was. I actually think that he thought he was going to get deployed and not come back from that. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and that was, In unison. That was, I know, right? I, that was like my greatest fear, you know. Was well, and as a, as and a soldier's wife, that's when you worry about it. You don't right. worry about it on yes. a Saturday at the pool no. with the family. Yes. Right. Like you're completely yes. off guard. All right, Mindy, you're at the hospital. The doctors just told you there's basically no hope. Even if there's some kind of vitality to his organs, there's not going to be any brain activity. What does saying goodbye to your husband look like in that moment? Now, Michelle, you had a cancer journey where you had time, good or bad, Mm -hmm. to prepare for that moment. My husband was dead and I never saw him before I ever knew he was dead. You're in this strange situation where you watched it, you experienced it, and then you had to go home without him. Can you... Give us a few words about that. Is that a fair question? I know that's a horrible question, but I would love to know your journey there in those moments. Oh, um, so I just, I remember sitting by the bed that he was still laying on. I was told that my kids had made it to the hospital from another friend who went and picked them up and took them over. And we were just, my parents and my brother were, were there with me. We were all crying. We were all confused. I just remember sitting next to that bed, super numb, not even crying at the moment, just sitting there staring into space. I did have to have conversations with, police officers and detectives because they did do an investigation. And uh, then I had you know, our friend that was there swimming. I gave her the awful task of making lots of phone calls 
And somehow she was given the strength to do that. And I would say, okay, go call this person, this person, this person. I gave her my phone and she called them and then she'd come back and she'd say, who else? And I'd say, okay, now do this person, this person, this person, just thinking through all the family, friends, work, military, church, like all the people that were involved in our life. And and many of them wanted to come over uh, to the hospital. And, you know, his, a lot of his family still lives in Tremonton, but they were all down here at at Huntsman with my father-in-law. It was his birthday, my father-in-law's birthday, the oh, day Corey died. And here he is recovering from surgery. They found a cancerous, you know, mass, and they were had just removed that, and he was recovering from that, and he was bound to his bed. They had to do a skin graft, so he literally couldn't move. But his family was all close by, so it didn't take them very long to make it over to us. And everybody wanted to know what happened and why. And I couldn't tell them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what happened. There weren't answers. He, he just stopped. I kind of knew at the beginning, for some reason, I knew that it, his heart stopped. And that was it. But like, why? I don't know. Yeah. And, um, then I briefly met with the hospital chaplain there. I realized I needed to go tell my kids. His family had come. Those who had wanted to see him had seen him. They needed to take him away soon. And so the the hospital chaplain took me down this back little hallway to this extra little door into the lobby where I, I knew the kids were out there. And I'd been told that no one had said anything to them, that they kept asking is that okay? Is that okay? Does anybody know? And everybody just kept saying, we're not sure yet. We're not sure yet, even though they knew. And that quick two, three minute walk down this back little hallway, the chaplain said to me, I know nothing makes sense right now, but you have to let your kids choose if they want to see your husband's body. You have to let them choose. If you force them one way or the other, chances are it will haunt them later in life. So I walked into the lobby and hugged a few people. All I could think about was, I got to tell my kids. As soon as they saw me, they were like, Mommy, how's Daddy? And I just kind of like gathered. It's when I wished my arms were longer. Jenny, I think you've said the same thing. I wished I had more like arms and space to like hold them. And I have, I just had the three with a giant pregnant belly. but my arms were still not big enough to like put around all to of them. them. Yeah. I asked our Bishop to come into the little room with us. Cause I just didn't want to be alone. And that's when I said, dad's gone and he's not coming home. He died. Mm. And you know, the shock on their faces are just hard to forget at the time. Um, our oldest was 10 and then our daughter was seven, and our other daughter was five. And, yeah, that's a hard thing. But I immediately had to say, they need to take his body, and so you need to choose right now if oh you want gosh, to go Mindy. see him or not. And my oldest son said no, and my daughters both said yes. 
And to this day, we talk about it every so often, to this day, they still don't regret that decision that they made. Well, and I love that that you were able to let them make that decision. Yes, and I would not have thought about that. And so bless that hospital chaplain. He was, you know, like, this is what, this is what's most important. And I need to tell you this right now. And it was, it's still a hundred percent true. So I took my daughters back and, and they just put their hand on their dad. And then eventually, I don't know, someone drove us home. I don't know. (laughs) And, and, um, you know, that was a dark night. There were so, so many friends that were like, what do you need right now? And I'd left my house a mess. It was a Saturday. I was planning on just hanging out all day. I was pregnant and tired. So we were just watching like cartoons or something all morning. I don't even remember. I don't think I'd even done the breakfast dishes yet. It was just a hangout day. And then dad got done early. So we're like, oh, let's go swimming. Then we'll go out to dinner. We'll stop at Costco on the way home. And then everybody will clean up the house. That was our Saturday time. And so my house was a mess. And so I sent all those friends over to go clean my house. So I came home to dishes being done and vacuuming going on. And I don't even remember, but there was a house full of people. They made me eat. And that physically made me sick. Someone made me a smoothie. I was like, yeah, I could probably eat a smoothie. I think I had two swallows. And it it just, it literally made me ill to even eat. And, um, you know, then everybody leaves and my mom stayed. The kids slept in my, my room with me. Um, but sleeping is with air quotes because I don't think I really slept, you know, it was. How far along are you? Seven months. Seven months. Yeah, yeah. Something close to there. Jack was born six weeks after Corey died. He came mm. a week ish early. Um, so, yeah, something like that. And then, you know, that first week is just a whirlwind of so many decisions I didn't even know I needed to make. And this was not something I was planning on doing. This was not something we had really talked about very much either. I didn't know all the details about life insurance and, and military benefits, and I had certainly never planned a funeral and picked burial plants and all of that. I can't even imagine. So for me, I had my husband to help plan his yeah. final he got wishes. To give you his opinions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of which I'm now changing, yeah. by the way, three years later. But <laughs> it's weird how, how some things can evolve. But anyway, I can't even imagine you're a young family, you're pregnant. Well, and three little kids who just lost their dad, too. I mean, you're carrying yeah. an unbelievable amount of weight to even have the clarity of mind to think through some of those. Well, and it's so sudden. Like, I mean, I, I can't imagine. It's like you get ripped out of your world and put in somebody else's world. Yeah. You're like, who, whose yeah. life is this? Yeah. Hey, Mindy, let's, mm-hmm. let's take a break for a minute. When we come back, I want to know, like I said, you're one of the most positive, just beautiful, light-caring people I know. I would love to have you share with us what you've learned in this journey with the people who have helped you with the experiences you've had giving birth to that child and what what this resilience path of your own has looked like. We'll be right back. 
right, Mindy, we could spend days, all of us, walking through those first days, those first weeks, those first hours after losing your husband. Like Michelle said, just the enormous task of planning a funeral, picking a burial plot, keeping your three children nourished and alive and loved while you yourself can hardly nourish your own body, let alone the growing baby inside of you. Yeah, um, I can't even. We, we could spend amazing. days and days talking about this. I'm wondering if you can tell us... Um, not necessarily the timeline of things, but what and where have you found the strength and the tools that you've needed to be able to get to the point where you are now, including delivering that baby and raising those children and living as a as a newly widowed mom? Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to this resilience that I know you have in abundance and admire you so much for? So I think I've been surrounded by angels and that is both in the physical sense as well as in a spiritual sense. I could not do all that I'm doing without people helping me. Definitely like, you know, family members and some close friends offering all kinds of support. You know, our good neighbor, our friends that were swimming with us that day, they're still our really good friends and, and he takes my kids on adventures and, you know, other people came to take out garbage, of course, and brought like food and things like that and helped coming through those ways of taking some of the actual to-do tasks away from me has left me strength to support myself and my kids and all of the different things. People coming to watch the littles while I take the olders to therapy, stuff like that. And, you know, little by little, you just start to kind of get used to the new reality. And I still have lows. Even just a few weeks ago, I had several days in a row where I just was just a low for me. And I sort of felt unloved. But it's really annoying to even say that because my brain knows I'm loved and cared about. You know, there's family and friends and Corey and God and there's people around me but my brain knows it and sometimes my heart doesn't feel it I don't know if that that's a beautiful way to no that's a beautiful it. way to put it um yeah that your analytic side I can look just, at it and say I'm not alone and yet you can feel so yeah. overwhelmingly alone yeah. yeah yeah and it's hard to explain and understand but it just is like that sometimes and I just couldn't feel it and I uh, I don't know. I think sometimes you have to reach those lows to be able to pick yourself up again. And for me, choosing to love others and then through prayer, I'm sort of given just a little bit more strength, little by little and a little more and a little more. And you just kind of choose to keep going. And I think that's what resilience looks like for me is just choosing to keep going. You know, there's hard things and we know that the hard things are never going to go away there's going to be more and different and you know different outcomes different situations and there's a lot of me that doesn't want to do this that was kind of one of the first things that I said as people started coming over to visit us at the hospital that just minutes after Corey had officially been pronounced dead it was I don't want to do this and that's what I have yelled out loud to God and others of, I don't want to do this, but 
I can't change that. And so there comes a point where you just have to choose to keep going. And there's, I don't know, I sort of feel like, well, what else am I going to do? Sometimes I feel like I didn't have a choice in this. Most of the time, I feel like I didn't have a choice in this. But now, what else am I going to do? There's too much at stake to just stop or give up or whatever. There's still too much love in our family. There's too much hope in the future. And it's just sort of like, well, what else am I going to do but to just keep going? Sometimes I don't want to, but I am. I think to. I think you've summed up real resilience so beautifully there to say it's it's not a matter of I feel great and this is good and I'm just going to keep going because I'm so resilient and strong. It's the opposite. It's looking at it and saying, I don't want to do this. I never would have chosen to do this. I did not plan or prepare to do this. And guess what? I'm going to do this. And Mindy, that's what I love about you. So many people will say, oh, you're so strong. You can do amazing things. Well, it's amazing what you can do when you really don't have a choice. And yet, Mm -hmm. Mindy, you hit it on the head. You do have that choice. You choose to keep going, to keep being optimistic, Mm -hmm. to hang on to that hope, even when your heart doesn't feel it. And I think that's important for me to remember, for our listeners to remember. Sometimes you won't feel what you know, and that's okay. And hang in there. And I know there's times I have to remind myself, I know I don't always feel this awful. I know I don't always feel this hopeless. I know somewhere in my being, I'm going to find a positive ray of light again. Because there are moments when I don't. And I, for me, the greatest strength I've found is being able to sit in that dark moment. Yeah. Without being scared to death of that dark moment, because I know that dark moment doesn't have to last forever. But to also really give yourself permission to, to feel be in that, that moment. Absolutely. And I think that that was the hardest thing for me to get to, yeah. is to learn how to sit with the darkness and to yeah. sit with the sadness, the loneliness, the loss. To let it be. And to allow it to feel it, to feel it in my body, to feel it in my heart, yeah. and then allow it, give it space to go. Yeah. And then... Yeah. When it's gone, it's back to, all right. Well, like you said, I, I got to get on with the rest of it. There's too much at stake to mm-hmm. just give up. There's too much at stake for those beautiful children you have, for the the light yeah. that you carry. Mindy, tell us about what you're doing in, in terms of Corey's Memorial Foundation and the work you continue that, of course, is in line with the work he would have continued had he been here longer. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, so I... Just, I feel like it was random, but sometimes I think random stuff isn't random. So I randomly had this thought one day of just, I want to start a memorial foundation. So I just immediately started writing down like all of the things that I could think of. It was coming to my brain, just quickly writing it down, just this big giant brainstorm list. And you've kind of honed in on one specific thing. So I started the Corey Holmgren Memorial Fund. And we, we basically have been focusing on therapy scholarships to the clinic where Corey works, Lifestar, it's in Murray, and we offer therapy scholarships. Lifestar specializes in sexual addiction recovery. That's why Corey works there. You know, last year we spent more than $16,000 just in scholarships for married couples as well as single individuals. Um, and this year we've already started five more and we have a waiting list and that gives me anxiety because people need it. And if we can't quite offer it to them, I'm just like, Ooh, when is it going to be time? You know, but, um, 
I have found a lot of hope and continuation in helping people. This is exactly what Corey was doing when he was still alive. And I felt a lot of despair and sadness for his clients that were in the middle of their own therapy treatments and plans with Corey that just abruptly got stopped. Um, you know, Lifestar was great in, in trying to work with the other therapists and clients and trying to get them still matched up good. But still, you you create a bond and a, and a relationship with a therapist like that, and then all of a sudden someone that you love and care about so much who has been a support to you is just also pulled from your world. I mean, my world was rocked, but I also just felt through theirs, and I've been blessed to have some of them reach out to me and share with me some of their stories and experiences with Corey. And I, I can't even say how much that's meant to me because I don't even know who they are. You know, they've had all these experiences with Corey and I don't even know that they exist because there's, it's not like Corey can come home and tell me about it. And um, so I've, I've thoroughly loved when they have felt comfortable to reach out to me and share some of their stories with me. And I just really was like, well, what about all of those people that are still here that Corey could have helped if he was still alive? And of course, I've gotten angry about that. You, it's okay to let yourself get angry about that. You know, there's all these people that Corey should still be here to help. He's not, however, but I can do just a small fraction of, you know, just the same little bit of work in in this, uh, yeah, I guess a calling, a calling of, of trying to just keep helping people just a little bit, try to find some comfort, some peace, some healing from traumas, betrayal, whatever it is. And, um, and I'm, I'm grateful now for the connections and the interactions that I have been able to have and the things that I've been learning about um, supporting that and, and, and loving people through that and, and helping people to realize their potential in that. So it's been a really great experience. That's fantastic. I just wrote down what you said part way through there. I found hope in helping people. And I think we always joke, mm. Mindy, about making T-shirts, like <laughs> T-shirts have really good ideas. Like I found hope in uh-huh. helping people. Like how many times do we get lost in our own loss and grief and weight? And like you said, we, we can be angry. We can be sad. It's okay to feel what we feel. There's no need to pretend it's not there or feel badly if we feel those feelings. But what a beautiful part of resilience is helping someone else. And I think you've really... Um, taught us a lot about that today. You've taught us about asking for help. You've taught us about taking on the challenge when you don't feel like it and just choosing to keep going anyway. You've taught us so many beautiful things. I love what you're doing. I know um, I know Corey is proud of you. I love that you look at this as a, a calling on on both sides of life and death. And I, I feel that's right. I, I find myself just smiling, thinking, look at that girl go. Look at that girl giving birth after her husband died and look at her taking life by the horns and look at her raising those beautiful children and and look at you, Mindy, all that you're doing in your own grief and in your own pain to be able to find purpose in helping other people. Thank you for sharing that with us today. I think that's powerful. It's a very powerful story. And you're right, resilience on so many levels from the beginning of the story to 
to now. Thank you for joining us. It's been great to hear your story. It's thank you. Thank was, you for having me. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed our visit. It was really hard to hear. I mean, just to imagine being so young and young family and one moment your husband's right there with you, with you and then he's not. I just it wasn't my experience, so it's just hard to put yourself in that position and, and think what happens when your world gets turned upside down like that. It's amazing. I'm so glad that you had so much support around you, so much family, uh, friends. It's really amazing. As you were talking, I thought it would be interesting to talk to that family that was also there and, and hear about the ripple effect and how it touched them. So I, yeah. I don't know if that would be something you'd want to reach out to them and if they'd want to participate. But I think we often talk to the, the direct the impact family. Sure. And um, we've had a couple people that aren't. But it, I think it's just it's such a powerful story. And so it, there's always so many different viewpoints to one yeah. experience. It, like you said, Mindy, even your husband's therapy clients and how their world was impacted and, and your friends and your family friends and your friends that are like family. Yeah. And how it's impacted them. Yeah. I think there'd be room for some beautiful continuing conversations. It really would. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah, you for having and, me. And just thanks to all of our listeners every week who join us on these journeys. You know, my brother jokes with me that this is such a depressing podcast. He's <laughs> like, oh, I can't even listen because it's just all these horrible things people live through. And I see it so differently. I know. It is all these horrible things people live through. And they come out standing and smiling and helping others and growing and learning. And I find it so invigorating. And so, we all have a story. <laughs> and we all and have we all multiple stories. stories. Yeah, right? It's, so listen. Like, if you're listening and you have a story that feels hard and awful and heavy and you're not sure if you've got the poster child of resilience in you, come share that story with us. Share it with our listeners. We'd love to have you share that journey of what you've learned and what you're still learning. It's not a journey that just ends because it's in your past. It's something we carry with us each day. So to all of our listeners, we want you to be brave and vulnerable and help us learn together. You can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. We would love to hear and share your story. Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day. Take care, everybody. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.